0: Well, this morning we are um, looking, um, coming close to the end uh, of a series that Pastor Keith started several weeks ago called Behind the Scenes of Difficult Times, and um, I want to start this way. Picture this scene. Picture yourself in this scene. You're summoned by the two most powerful men in the world. To answer to charges that they are laying against you. What are those charges? Insurrection. Attacks against the crown. Calls for revolution. Heresy. And what's the punishment connected to those crimes? Excommunication. You're going to be banished from the kingdom. Banished from your local church. And more than likely you're going to be executed. And there's no avoiding this. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows what you've done. And this uh, summon has been made public. There's no way around it. The public hearing has been called and you've been asked to come and represent yourself. You've been, come, you've been summoned to speak on your behalf and defend yourself against the two most powerful people on the planet. You realize this is a very precarious situation you're in. You realize the danger that you're in because something like this happened before. Another man suffered the same summoning and and he showed up in good faith. And soon after his trial, he was burned at the stake. You make the journey, you show up on time, and you're greeted by a room full of expert witnesses. Waiting eagerly at the edge of their seats just just to hang you on any possible word you might say. And you have to dance, as it were, with one of the most brilliant attorneys on the face of the planet. He's got records of your writings that have been disseminated all over the place. He's got them all marked up. He knows what you've said, how you've said it. And he's reading these things out to the gathered assembly. And after hours of grueling debate... Two days as a matter of fact. The skilled prosecutor looks at you in the eyes and says. This is clear evidence against you for your crimes. Recant and repent. And here you are and you stand and you say the following words. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now as you as you listen to that. Described you, you, you probably would characterize yourself as being faithful in that moment. What you have done—that standing up in boldness for what you believe to be right and good, in spite of all the external pressure and danger staring at you in the face—and how you respond with, with it with a boldness against it—you would say that is what faith looks like. Well, the scene that I've described to you is a true story. This occurred in April 18th of 1521. And the man in this story is the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Who was summoned by Emperor Charles V and the Pope Leo X. In an event that's called the Diet of Worms. Now, when I went to seminary, I knew that Martin Luther was a historical figure in the life of the church. And I knew that people had been really, really mean to him. And when we came to the lecture on the diet of worms, you would imagine my surprise when I said, they made that dude eat worms? Man, they were really bad with this dude. No, the diet of worms is just a phrase that means the gathering assembly and worms was a city in Germany at the time. So this is like a congressional hearing that he was pulled into. But this is a true story. This actually happened. Martin Luther is summoned to to stand up against his crime of preaching the word of God before the emperor and before the pope at the time. And this is so crazy that a bodyguard is sent with him from where he was hiding to the summoning in fear that he was going to get assassinated on the way there. And Martin Luther, in fact, at the end of the second day stays up. And like we all know the story, if you know the story, he says, I cannot recant. Here I stand, I can do no other. Now, that's not the whole story. That is not the entire description of the events. And I'm using this illustration to point out that sometimes we have an unbalanced view of what faithfulness is. Because the evening before Martin Luther stands before court and says those words, Martin Luther is on his knees. He's weeping before the Lord. He is saying, oh Lord, where are you? So my question to you would be, which of these Martin Luthers is the faithful Martin Luther? How would you describe faith more accurately? Is the Martin Luther standing before his accusers, boldly defying them in strength and power? Is that faithfulness? Or is the Martin Luther on his knees before the Lord, on the verge of giving up, struggling to gather the last bit of energy, crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, where are you? This morning, we're going to delve into the topic of lament. And I'm going to make an argument from Scripture that this second category is also faithfulness. That Martin Luther was faithful as he stood, but Martin Luther could be faithful because he kneeled. He found strength in this moment that led him to this moment. And we must be very careful in the Christian life that we, that we look at this moment of lament to the Lord as, as something to be avoided, ignored, or even seek to do, do away with. As we've been studying in the book of Hebrews, th- this came alive in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23... Which reads, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That phrase just stuck out to me. And, and as I read the Bible, maybe you're like me, I ask questions. I read that verse and I said, what does that mean? What does that look like? Like, like what does without wavering look like in the life of a believer? I think it looks like what Martin Luther, Martin Luther did when he kneeled. And I think there's enough in Scripture in the psalm that we're going to look at to make that point. So holding fast the confession of, our, of our, our hope without wavering looks like prayers of lament. What is a prayer of lament, you would ask? Prayers of lament are the sounds believers make as they look up through pain and in hope to God. And there's a number of these prayers of lament in Scripture. We're going to look at one in Psalm 77. So open your Bibles to Psalm 77. We're going to read together. We're going to pray. And then we will ask the Lord to guide our hearts and minds. Psalm 77 verse 1. The psalmist writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids together. I'm so troubled. I I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I I said, let let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn me forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? or his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people the children of Jacob and Joseph. Let's pray together. Father, hear our prayer this morning that you would hear us as we come, O Lord, asking you, Lord, to speak. Open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say and change our lives as a result of that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a sermon about prayer and about a very specific type of prayer. I would want you to leave today being equipped with not only wanting to pray, but knowing how to pray and knowing how to execute a specific form of biblical prayer called prayers of lament. And so to properly do a prayer of lament, to properly and biblically pray in a way that laments faithfully... There are three actions involved. You turn to God, you complain to God, and you trust in God. Let's look at that first one, turn to God. We see this in verse 1 of Psalm 17. The psalmist says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. There, there, there's a reason why the book of Psalms is the favorite book of many people and has been a, the favorite book of many people throughout the history of Christianity. It's, it, it's, a, it's a book of emotions, it's a catalog of responses of the human heart to every category of human experience. In the Psalms, you'll find joy, you'll find excitement. You'll you'll, you'll, you'll find a thrill of being thrust into the purposes of God. You'll you'll find anticipation for what the Lord is going to do. You'll find courage and boldness. But you'll also find expressions of fear. You'll hear men and women express stress, being burdened by depression, suffering and pain and pleading to God. The book of Psalms is the realest book in the Bible. It's the most authentic book in the Bible. That doesn't mean that the other books are not authentic, but this one's raw. This one gets to the expression of the human heart. This book has been called the song book of the Bible. God put the book of Psalms in the Bible to help his people love him. When they are happy and when they are hurting. And this is what makes this book so magnificent. But the interesting thing about the book of Psalms is most of it, two thirds of this book, deals with lament. Two thirds of the songs that God wants us to sing to Him are songs and prayers of lament. Now, why would that be? Because D- David was kind of one of those emo kids that dresses in black. Why would that be? He's kind of dark and moody. you know he just had that character bent to him. I think, I think that the answer to that is self-evident. We all understand that we really don't need help when life is happy. You don't need help when things are going your way, but we are desperate when life hurts. Happiness is easy to understand, is it not? It's easy to understand. It, it's self-evident, it's clear. It's docile. It's predictable. It's enjoyable. No one in this room has ever asked the question, oh my goodness, why am I happy? Why are these good things happening to me? I should be concerned. My life feels great. Have you you ever walked through life that way? Fearing another moment of happiness? Being stressed about something good happening to you? Like we, we don't, we don't, we just expect happiness, right? We respond to it immediately. We don't need to understand happiness. We just we just like it. We we run towards it because it's happy. But pain is not tame. And here's the particular difference between happiness and and, and pain. And our experience of it. And I think the wisdom of God in in speaking to us in the way he does in the Psalms. Happiness seems to leave quickly. It's it's effervescent. It just just goes away quickly. But pain lingers. And it doesn't want to let go. As a matter of fact, some translations render verse 1 like this oh god i keep on screaming the psalmist is in pain he he's in anguish he he is in need he is opening up his heart to us but there's one thing he's not in he's not in silence he turns to god again and again and again and, and this is modeled in the Psalms all over this book. And it's modeled by David who writes this Psalm. So this is not one bad day David had. Psalm 4.1 says, answer me when I call, O God. Psalm 5.1 says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Psalm 17.1 says, O Lord, attend to my cry. Psalm 22 says, O God, I cry by day and by night. Psalm 142, 1 says, With my voice I cry aloud to God. Same book, same author, David's writing all these psalms, and that's just a sprinkling of them. So in God's wisdom, we are meant to learn something from His Word, and we are meant to learn something from these psalms. Constantly turning to God. Listen to me, Christian. Constantly turning to God when you are in need is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of faith. The Bible doesn't hide this about David. It features it. How do you walk through the Christian life? How do you walk in your life when things are hard? You cry out to the Lord. How many times? Some of the time, most of the time, all of the time. Repeatedly, you you turn to God. If you don't hear me say anything this morning, please, please hear this. Pray in pain. Pray in pain. When you are in pain, pray. Now why? Well, because it takes faith to pray in pain. It takes faith to pray in pain because the opposite, the inverse, not praying is pain, not praying in pain is an act of giving oneself to unbelief. When you don't pray in pain, you are willfully or unwillfully giving yourself over to unbelief. And we'll see this. You ever ever give anyone the silent treatment? ever been on the receiving end of the silent treatment remember your spouse your boyfriend your co-worker your friend your brother I don't know someone that's close to you that you love and then all of a sudden right silent treatment what's that about like what's what's happening I mean you're not saying anything right when you give someone the silent treatment, you're not saying anything, but you're communicating something, right? The silent treatment is a response to an event in a relationship. We may not speak words, but we communicate something clearly. And what we, don't, what we communicate clearly when we give the silent treatment is this. Right now, I don't like you, right? Right? Right now, I don't trust you. And right now, I don't need, I don't need you. Do you see that escalation? I don't like you right now. I don't trust you right now. I don't need you right now. And the net result of that is I'm good without you. Like, I'm, I'm going to pursue life in this direction. Oh, yeah, you got me. It hurt. That's cool. But I'm going to go over here. That's what the silent treatment is about. One of, the, one of the tragedies of Hurricane Ida was that more people died from carbon monoxide poisoning after the storm. After the storm, more people died as a result of generator use by being poisoned by carbon monoxide than the actual storm. Carbon monoxide has been called the silent killer. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You, you can't even feel it. It just operates in you in such a way that before you realize it, oh wait, you can't realize it, you're dead. Giving God the silent treatment does to the soul what carbon monoxide does to your body. Giving God the silent treatment slowly and silently brings you to death. Because God, as the author of life, as the source of everlasting life, when we are silent before him, when we don't turn towards him, we turn away from him. And there is no other source for life. We turn to death. We turn to other things except the one who can bring life into our Hearts, and listen. I get this. You may have, according to your perspective, justifiable categories for why you have given God the silent treatment recently. Maybe you don't want to turn to Him. Maybe you're re- immediately starting the sermon, I've, I've ticked you off because I don't want to turn to God right now, Ronald. Friend, if you're afraid to pray because it's too painful or too personal. Praying in pain connects you with the promises of God. Look look at how this verse 1 ends. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. This is the first characteristic of prayers of lament. Turn to God. Redirects you towards Him. That's step one. Before you do anything else, when life starts to crumble, when pain starts to be more evident... Step one, you turn to God. But what do I say? What do I say? All right, so turn to God. Prayer of lament checkbox, turn to God. Great. Now I have to talk to him. I was giving him the silent treatment. Okay. The dude's convinced me I shouldn't do that. All right, but what do I say? Well, you complain. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord spurn me forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Now listen. No one likes complainers, right? There's a reason complainers get a bad rap. I mean... Next to, you know, Atlanta Falcons fans and, you know, people who drive slow on the left lane of the highway, right? The, the unholy trinity of people we love to hate are complainers and whiners, right? It's like, it's like if you, if you, if you want to invent the, the worst human being you can imagine, it, it, w- trait number one is complainer, right? We hate complainers. Complaining gets a bad rap, and, and it should. But <laughs> ironically... Prayers of lament feature complaining as a key strategy. So, we have to understand what this is about. Most of the sermon will probably live here, because this is a a pretty interesting point. The type of complaining I have in mind is not entitled grumbling. There's uh, There's a walking meme in society called Karen... Do y'all know what, what Karen is, who who a Karen is? You know, it's that it's that ubiquitous person who always calls the manager when something's not going their way, right? like they call Chick-fil-A and they order, you know, 50, you know, kids meals and then they show up. The kids meals aren't ready. Can I, can I speak to the manager, please? And the manager comes up and says, yeah, ma'am, can I help you? Yeah, I ordered 50 kids meals and uh, uh, this, the servant here tells me they're not ready. Yeah, ma'am, you're, you're correct. They're, they're, they're not ready. This is unacceptable. Well, ma'am, you ordered those two minutes ago from the parking lot. So, you uh, know, <laughs> as a matter of fact, we saw you sitting in the parking lot and, you know, don't be a Karen. Right, that's entitled grumbling. This sense of things belong to me, they answer to me. This this accusatory type uh, um, expression. And look, we've got examples in scripture where people who grumbled and complained and were entitled about such things, it didn't go too well for them. Do you all know what happened to the people of Israel? Did y'all know that they wandered and died in the wilderness because they what? They grumbled. They complained, right? So are we supposed to complain or are we not supposed to complain? I'm confused. No, no. We're, we're supposed to complain. The complaining I have in mind that I think this passage bears out is, is guided by something. I, I love to make up terms and words. Um, uh, so I made up a word uh, or a term. Humble honesty. Humble honesty. Humble honesty, right? The words aren't made up, but, but the, the term is something I think I made up. Complaining that is guided by humble honesty is what we're we're appealing to here. And, and, and what's that? Well, um, um, faithful prayers of lament are characterized by humble honesty in, in this way. Number one, an honest description of true feelings. An honest description of true feelings. So that's the honesty part. But then the humble part is a humble realization that our feelings are not truth. That is a key idea for prayers of lament to be biblical and right and helpful. Speak to God about exactly what you feel. Tell him what's happening in your heart. Be honest with him. But be humble and recognize that what you may be feeling is not the last word to what is happening or to what should happen. So complain to God with humble honesty. And I challenge you, if you're struggling with this, spend some time this afternoon flipping through the Psalms. Just open them. And you're going to see example after example of humble and honest complaints. All, all, all over the place. God, I feel this way. God, I don't see you. God, you're hiding from me. God, you're silent. God, you're not with me. God, I'd cry all night and you to do anything about it. I'm pulling phrases straight from the Psalms. Now, why is that? There's a good reason why the psalms feature this. And that's because God knows our hearts. Our maker knows how he's made us. He knows our hearts. And he is teaching us what we need to do to get to where we need to be. In expressing our feelings and emotions to God, we're being taught what we need to do, express our emotions in a specific way. To get us to where we need to be, what we need to do involves steering those emotions, guiding them, taking them somewhere. In her book, Johnny Erickson taught a wonderful book called When God Weeps Why Our Suffering Matters to the Almighty. She, she emphasizes this and she says, Strong emotions open the door to asking the really hard questions Does life make sense? Is, is God good? But more to the point, our deep emotions reveal the spiritual direction in which we are moving. Do you see why it's important to be honest in your prayers? Are we moving towards the Almighty? Or are we moving away from Him? And she's going to use anger as an example of this. Anger properly makes someone the issue of our suffering rather than something. Did you catch that? And that's moving in the right direction. When anger bubbles up in your heart and you take that anger to God, you recognize that you're angry about what's happened. But the more you express that anger, you recognize that you're, you're, those emotions stop at God's desk. That's really what the issue is. God, I'm, I'm angry because this happened, but more because I think you allowed this to happen. And that's the point. That's the function of complaining to God, of turning to God and complaining to Him and expressing ourselves. Now, be careful. I don't want to undo this sermon by adding too many guardrails because there are many Psalms that add no guardrails. They're just raw and open, reverent and respectful, but raw and open expressions of our heart. In His kindness, God has given our hearts directions to His. And the means to get there is through prayers of lament. This is exactly one of the things we need to do to get to where we need to be. We need to lament. It's interesting. The, the, there's, the, 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 there's a parallel thought that secular uh, psychology stumbled upon in the late 60s, early 70s. I'm sure y'all have seen a movie or watched a TV show that's featured... Um, somebody going into a, a therapist's office and, you know, either, either being given, you know, boxing gloves to go hit a, bo- a, a bag or given a bag to scream into the bag. Um, um, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen that. But if you haven't, that was a form of therapy that came to, 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 to fruition in the late 60s, early 70s called primal therapy. And uh, it became all the rage because it received the support of two influential uh, um, movie stars or, or, or ce- uh, celebrities. John Lennon was one, and uh, James Earl Jones. Uh, Voice of the original Darth Vader, uh, voice of Mufasa for, you know, younger generation. So the, these two guys talked about primal therapy. The, the idea of when I have emotions like anger, for example, the, 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 the way you deal with that is you, is you go and you scream angrily. You're like, ah, or you punch something. And, and that was the therapeutic method that was used. However, it, it lost favor among the psychological community because of, of two key discoveries One, psychologists discovered that when you're angry and you are told this is how you guide or steer your anger, go do angry things. They recognize that that's actually making people, get this, angrier. (laughs) It, it It was teaching people to become violent, so how do, you, how do you deal with your anger? Be violent, right? No one saw this coming, right? But then the second and the deeper reason why they discovered that this form of therapy was not good is because what undergirded the idea of primal therapy was a word that you've, you've used. You haven't used this word maybe, but you've come to believe in this idea of catharsis. You just need a cathartic moment, right? You need to let off some steam, Right? That's what you need. You just need to, you need to empty yourself of what's inside. The reason why catharsis wasn't enough, and it wasn't, and this uh, therapeutic model, you're still going to find it, but it, it just got completely shredded in secular psychology is because they recognize that catharsis isn't enough. Once you vent, you're empty. Once you vent your anger, guess what's inside you? Nothing. You're still empty. Prayers of lament are nothing like this. This is not what I'm encouraging us to do, to go scream at God till we feel better. Venting empties, but prayers of lament, you come in a posture to be filled. You come to God and you say, God, fill me. This is what's inside me. It's, it's not good. It's hurting me. It, it's making me feel certain ways. Will, will, you, will you fill me? And, and the effect of lament... As you humbly and honestly complain to God, the the effect of it is what I've hinted at already, that your heart is exposed. You come to realize that you are not enough to deal with what's happening. This is, by the way, why the patients of the primal therapy, they recognized as well. "I, I can't vent enough times. Like, what I'm doing isn't working because I'm not the solution to what's wrong with me. The process is not the solution to what's wrong with me. But in prayers of lament, the process leads to a person. In his wonderful book on lamenting, Mark Vibrop writes, through godly complaint we are able to express our disappointments and move toward a resolution. We complain on the basis of our belief in who God is and what he can do while crying is human to lament is christian lament is how those who know what god is like and believe in him address their pain god is good but life is hard enter complaint a lament honestly and specifically names a situation or circumstance that is painful wrong or unjust in other words a circumstance that does not align with god's character And therefore does not make sense within God's kingdom. Lament is the language of a people who believe in God's sovereignty. But live in a world of tragedy. Why why complain with prayers of lament? Because prayers of lament redirect the weeping heart from the pangs of sorrow to the provisions of a savior. Your faith is not in the form of prayer. Your faith is in the one who hears prayer. Prayers of lament steer you towards God. They redirect your weeping heart from the pangs of your sorrow to the provisions of a Savior. We, we see another example of this. We've looked at David, right? David's an example of, of turning to God. Frequently turning to God. That's a faithful example of what the Christian life, a believer, should look like. David modeled for this well. We have another example from another character in the Old Testament, uh, Elijah, the great prophet Elijah. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse through 8. You guys know the buildup to this. This is one of the most incredible scenes in the Bible. Where, where God sends Elijah to, to, to wreak havoc on Ahaz and his wife because they've driven the people of Israel to worship false gods, in particular Baal. And there's this showdown, right? Showdown on two mountains. On, on, here in one corner, you have the prophet Elijah. And in the other corner, you have a thousand other prophets of false gods. And, and, and they go tit for tat. They, 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 they go, hey, listen, um, why don't you pray for your God and see if he listen, listens. And I'll pray to my God and see if he listens. And, of course, you all know the story. The thousand priests and prophets of Baal, they go through all these you know, weird motions and do all these weird rituals and stuff to get their God. They cut themselves. They scream. They sacrifice stuff for days. And uh, Elijah's mocking them the entire time. You guys, are, you guys are fools. I mean, look at this. Then Elijah gets on his face and says, oh, Lord of heaven, show yourself to these people. And God sends down fire and consumes the offering and everyone's, the entire people of Israel are watching this, by the way. And so th- this is like a, 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 re- a real life action movie. It's like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. And, and then in, in, in a display of courage and boldness, Elijah looks at the people of Israel and say, grab all these false prophets and kill them, execute them. There's only one true God and everyone's cheering for Elijah and Elijah lived happily ever after. Not quite. That was chapter 18. This is chapter 19. The very next event that we're told in this passage is this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she's threatening to kill him. Then he was afraid. Wait, what? Elijah is afraid? And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. What did he do in Beersheba? He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. Who is he praying to? Who is he asking that he might die? God, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I know I am no better than my father's. That sounds strangely like a prayer of lament. Notice what doesn't happen here. Notice what the angel does not do. Who is this angel of the Lord? This is an angel sent by God to respond to the prayers of Elijah. What is Elijah praying? God, I am robed in unbelief. He's lamenting. I stink. I'm no better than the losers before me. I'm afraid. He sounds like you and me when we're afraid, right? Notice what the angel of the Lord does not do in the midst of hearing Elijah's complaint. Elijah's not rebuked. Repent, Elijah, for your unbelief. My goodness gracious, did you not see what happened the day before, Elijah? Really, dude? Fire rained from heaven and consumed the offerings, and a thousand priests of Baal were killed in your eyes, and the entire people of Israel repented? And one crazy broad and her husband threatened to kill you and now you're scared? What what is going on, man? Do you see that in the text? Is he rebuked? Is he punished? Is he told, buck up, dude. What what do you see? What does the angel do? The angel tells him it's going to be okay. But he does something strange. He tells him, you're not finished yet. This is a key aspect of prayers of lament. The prayers of lament serve as the conduit from, from which we receive the provisions of God. Elijah prays, complains, and is not told, it's okay, your task is over. He's told, get up. You still got a little bit to go and here eat this you're not done Elijah eat this that's going to last you for 40 days eat this that's going to give you the strength for three more steps in your journey but keep going do you see that in the text Prayers of lament put us in line to receive the provisions of God. And those provisions sometimes surprise us. Those provisions are sometimes not what we're praying to be done with. Those provisions don't necessarily and oftentimes actually do not meet the need we think needs to be met. They may surprise us. But a person of faith is never disappointed by what God gives, when He gives it. So, as you're praying this week, as you're praying tonight, as you're going through whatever, and you remember the sermon. Okay, he prayers of lament. I got to do three things. Number one is I got to turn to God. However much the world has messed me up, I'm disoriented. I don't know what 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 side is. That? Find God. Okay, I'm looking at Him now. Now, what was step two? A complain. So I gotta complain humble and honesty. I I, 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 gotta come to him and expect to receive something that may not be what I want, but but I'm gonna trust that that it is good because it's gonna meet his purposes. All right. And what's step three? Step three is trust in God. Turn to God, complain to God, and trust in God. And we see this in verse 13. The psalmist says, Your way, O God, is holy. You're doing something, God. You're doing something that is defined by holiness, by perfect moral goodness. What you're doing that involves what I'm experiencing is righteous and just. Your way, oh God, is holy. And verse 15, you are the God who works wonders. So again, questions. As I read... As I pray, I ask questions and I, I wrote down this question for myself because we, we, we hear this advice, don't we, frequently and this good, well-meaning advice But if I can confess something to you, brothers and sisters, I've often not known what this means. I've very often not understood or even seen what, trusting in god looks like when someone tells you hey trust in god what does that mean if if i could if i could you know give you a highlight reel of trusting in god actions what would i see yeah that's trusting in god i've struggled in my life understanding what does trusting in god mean not as a concept But as a moment, as as a, as a step in life, what this passage is teaching us is that trusting in God looks like, looks like prayers of lament. This looked like Martin Luther on his knees, pouring his soul out to God. This looks like the great warrior King David doing the same thing. This looks like Elijah, the, 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 the magnificent priest of the Old Testament, doing the same thing. What does trusting God look like, looks like? It looks like the floor. Trusting God looks like the floor. When do you see the floor? When do you stare at the ground? I'll tell you when you stare at the ground when you're on your knees before God. When you're desperately pursuing him, his provision and his care and his love. When your nose is crunched on a carpet that you maybe haven't vacuumed in a few weeks. But you don't care. When that carpet is wet and moist with your tears and your snot. When it's muffling the sound of your voice because you're screaming into it. That is trusting in God. That moment right there is a trusting in God that leads from the lament to the arms of the Savior. Now, trusting in God includes two actions. This first term is not original to me. I don't think I've ever had a good idea. I just don't remember where I got them. And then I forget that, so I just pretend they're my own. But I know this one is not mine. This term, I liked it. Trusting God includes two actions. Active patience and hopeful remembrance. What does active patience mean? I got that term from Mark Rebart's book. Uh, it's, in, it's in your, I think it's a second quote. I would highly encourage you, if you want more on this topic, on how to pray more psalms and how to grow your prayer life in this category, buy that book and read that book. But he uses the frame of active patience as a, an action required in the process of trusting God. Active patience is re-entering into the process of lament. So that it can lead us to trust God. Active patience is the waiting on the Lord while you're waiting on the Lord. It's the walking with God as you're waiting on God. It's the cycle of continually keeping in the waiting. And you see this in Psalm 77. Look at verse 2. The psalmist says, In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He's not describing one night of prayer he had. He's describing a, 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 a frequent. This is something that's happening in him time and time and time again. There's a repetitive nature to prayers of lament. And there's a repetitive nature to prayers of lament that lead to trust. Do not get confused. God may want you to keep asking him. That may be what he's doing in your life. That is how he's building trust in your heart. By creating circumstances where you have to ask him ten times. And maybe you're at time number three. And you're done. There's there's seven more times. That's what active patience looks like. The, The... and it 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 feels a certain way, right? So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 uses the analogy of running the race. That the, the Christian life is sometimes compared to physical activity, exercise, running the race. And I wrote, prayers of lament are to spiritual endurance. Prayers of lament are to spiritual endurance, what exercise and training are to physical endurance. They are the process by which we gain strength to persevere and remain focused on our goal. Every athlete, every world-class athlete trains to get stronger, to get more resilient, to get better. But they train for those things to lead them somewhere. I need these things to get me to my championship. I need these things to get me my medal. Without these things, I can't get the medal. How do I get these things? I got to train. How do I get strength? I got to train. How how, how, how am I not winded at the end of the second quarter? I got to train. Well, the analogy to spiritual life is you have to lament. You have to lament. You have to pray again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. God gives you strength while that's happening, and that strength redirects your eyes to what your prize is. Not the answer to your prayers, but the one who stands listening to their prayers. The second way this looks like, or the second category, is hopeful remembrance. Kurt, you can come back, man, if you're, if you're not up here yet. So active patience and hopeful remembrance. The key strategy that, that a second key strategy the psalmist uses is, is remembering. Hopeful remembrance is anchoring our hearts to the past works of God and antip- anticipation to the future works of God. Rehearsing the truths about God keeps prayers of lament from discouragement. Rehearsing what you know about God, what he's done for you, what he's done for other people, what he's done for the Christian church throughout history. Rehearsing what you know about God's deeds keeps you in your prayers of lament from discouragement. It's the strategy that enlivens hope. You see this in Psalm 77 verses 10. He said, the psalmist says, Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. The psalmist reminds himself of God's mercy and goodness by pointing out specific instances in his life when he has seen the mercy and goodness of God. This is essential to your prayers. This is critical to your life of a believer. This is, by the way, why you need to come to church. Because tucked away at the very beginning of this psalm, if you look in your Bibles, if you open it to Psalm 77, look at the heading of this psalm. Look at what it says. Psalm 77 is a worship song. The Psalms are meant to be sang in corporate worship. Now, that's a weird worship song. But sometimes God's ways are mysterious, are they not? We are asked to model lament from one person to the other. We are asked to, to present our laments in corporate settings. That's what sharing prayer requests are by the way that that's what you guys are going to do in small group this week as you gather don't, don't 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 fly by the prayer request moment those are key critical moments of your life as a believer where you can share a moment of of of, of a hopeful re- remembrance of god's done something good in your life brother i don't know what you're going through sister i don't know what you're going through but in my life this is how god was good That's the encouragement we we, we need. And I think this is the encouragement that bears this out. Let Let me just finish by pointing you to the last, the greatest lament in the history of the world. On the night when Jesus would be crucified, he went by himself to the Garden of Gethsemane and lamented. He cried to the Lord. said lord would you take this cup from me this is too much this feels too too overbearing this is too difficult this is this is this is beyond me now you theology nerds uh, look it means something it means jesus is, is is in distress he's lamenting what god has asked him to do But he models for us the key to lament. But Lord, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. And in the suffering of Jesus, we see God's care for us. That our faithful priest suffered like us. So that we would know what he's talking about when he speaks to us. Our faithful priest is with us. Our faithful priest knows your pain because he's experienced pain. And he's walked a pathway where he says, listen, I got through this. I gave myself over to the will and purpose of God. And the story panned out pretty good, didn't it? That's our model to follow. In Jesus, we find our what we need to get to where we need to be. The man of sorrows who can lead all men out of sorrow. By taking their sorrows for them and leading them to God. In the suffering of Jesus, we see God's fierce love for us. Sometimes we don't lament to God because we, we come to believe by deception or by instability or by whatever. We come to believe that God's going to turn his back on us. We come to question his goodness or his ability to answer what we're praying for. And so our, 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 our laments don't, aren't expressed to him because we just don't believe he's going to do anything about it. We believe he's going to abandon us. And this great lament in Gethsemane shows us that in the suffering of Jesus, while he was abandoned by mankind, he did not abandon mankind. Jesus did not abandon us in his great hour of suffering. He will not abandon us in ours. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I confess that I've. I confess I would want to preach on joy or, or. Or I don't know, something not so heavy. Lord, but your spirit has led us to this topic for these amount of weeks. Father, the work that you're doing is the work that needs to be done. Father, you are meeting people where they are, O oh Lord. There are categories of life that we're unaware of, Lord. We're just just being led by you. Father, so so will you incline your ear to hear people lament you as we sing, Lord? This is a song. So, Father, hear us now as we lament, Father. Hear us now as we connect with you and bring up, O Lord, to you our trial, our tribulation, our suffering, our moments of weakness. Lord, would you banish unbelief from our hearts, Lord? Would you make us soft and, and trusting towards you, O oh Lord? Would, would you provide, Father, what we need, Father? Would, would you give us the humility to recognize that what we need, only you know. Father, we also ask for your tender hand of care, Lord. Would you come near, Father? Would you, would you lift up, Lord? Would you, Would you be near, O oh Lord? Let's sing together.
1: There is strength within us, sorrow. There is beauty in our tears, and you meet us in our mourning with the love that casts out fear you are working in our waiting, sanctifying us, when beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Plans us still to prosper you have not forgotten us You're with us in the fire and the flood faithful forever perfect in Imagine you could understand your ways, reigning high above the heavens, reaching down in endless grace. You're the lifter of. compassionate and kind lift us up you surround and you uphold me and your promises my delight your plans are still to prosper you have not You're with us in the fire and the flood. the same May we run to you. May we cry out to you, God, in those moments of pain, those moments of suffering, God. But we are a desperate people, God. Even on our best days, we are a desperate people, God. May you comfort us. May you meet us here. May you guide us.